0: Hello and welcome to the AMSSM Sports MedCast. I'm your host, Dr. Seth Smith from the University of Florida, Department of Orthopedics, Division of Sports Medicine. Before I introduce our guests, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all the healthcare workers throughout our country and world who are bravely doing their jobs to save patients in our fight against the COVID-19 pandemic that has caused such loss in our world. While sports are certainly a great part of our world, our focus at this point in time continues to be directed at fighting this pandemic. I'd like to transition into our AMSSM Sports MedCast, where we will be discussing exertional heat illness with an emphasis on exertional heat stroke with two experts in the field of exertional heat illness. I am honored to introduce both who I consider friends, colleagues, mentors, and amazing leaders of people. First, Dr. Douglas Casa. Dr. Casa is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Connecticut, Director of Athletic Training, Education, and Chief Executive Officer of the Corey Stringer Institute, where he leads a team of experts who study sports safety, sudden death in sports, and exertional heat illness, exertional heat stroke. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed publications, book chapters, presented more than 400 times, and been a lead or co-author on over 15 position consensus statements on exertional heat illness, exertional heat stroke, and preventing sudden death. Dr. Casa earned his bachelor's degree in biology from Allegheny College, his master's degree in athletic training from the University of Florida, Go Gators, and his doctorate in exercise physiology from the University of Connecticut. Next, Dr. Fran O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is professor and chair, military and emergency medicine, and associate director for the Consortium on Health and Military Performance, Uniformed Services University, where he has uh, led sports medicine education and research for the military for over 20 years. He has authored over 75 peer-reviewed publication and book chapters. He has been on the board of the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Medical Athletic Association and is past president of the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine. He is a colonel in the United States Army and is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He has received the Corey Stringer Institute's Life Saving Research Award and the ACSM Citation Award. I'd like to devote the majority of our time tonight on discussing exertional heat stroke, which is defined as a core body temperature of greater than 105 degrees Fahrenheit with associated central nervous system changes. Its importance derives from the fact that it is one of the top three causes of death in athletes and fortunately 100% preventable if recognized and treated immediately at the time of presentation. For completeness sake, I think it is important to note the other forms of exertional heat illnesses include exercise-associated muscle cramps, heat syncope, and heat exhaustion. I had the opportunity to work with both of you on the consensus statement on the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke, and the first question I will direct to Dr. Casa. Dr. Casa, we know that most episodes of exertional heat stroke occur in the pre-hospital setting, and timely recognition and management leads to minimal morbidity with no significant mortality. Can you walk us through the basic paradigm for the pre-hospital care of exertional heat stroke?
1: Absolutely. Thank you for the intro, Steph. I'm honored to be with, obviously, some dear colleagues and also to work with so many close colleagues in AMSSM with a podcast like this. Um, so first, let's just kind of set the background of that 2018 document. Is the, the long struggle has been that the team physicians and the athletic trainers have a really good handle on exertional heat stroke, um, but then they're handing off care to EMT, EMS professionals, and emergency room physicians who are not following the same protocols um, for the recognition and treatment of exertional heat stroke. So our goal with the 2018 document is to help try to bridge that gap. So we brought together um, some of the leading um, team physicians, emergency room physicians, and athletic trainers to try to bridge some of those knowledge gaps and um, try to have a better working relationship between these organizations. Um, But when it comes to the the basic four steps um, for um, recognizing and treating exertional heat stroke, um, in a in a sports setting or a field setting, whether it be for a warfighter or a laborer or an athlete, um, we have to take our, uh, one step back and make sure we understand that our ultimate goal is to get their body temperature under 103 in 30 minutes. So within 30 minutes of collapse, our ultimate goal is to get them under 103. If they're under 103, you know, we're beyond the point where we're worrying about cell damage. And um, we're optimizing their chance for not just surviving, but recovering without any long-term complications. So that, that when we're setting up a, a protocol like this, we have to remember this 30-minute window. So first, we want to recognize it as quickly as possible. So when someone's running out to an athlete or, or coming to an athlete or, or, or a warfighter or a whoever whoever's caring for these people is ruling out, first of all, cardiac, obviously, thinking if they have any other medical conditions like asthma or um, diabetes or other um, sickle cell trait or other reasons why they might be struggling on the field. And if if, it, if they don't have other obvious medical conditions and it's not cardiac and they've collapsed during intense exercise in the heat, we should be strongly considering the likelihood of, that it could be a heat stroke. Second is getting um, a, a diagnostic accurate core body temperature measurement. And in a field setting, we really have to utilize a rectal temperature. It's the only valid measure um to use in a field setting um to have that really key piece of, of data because you know you could see the CNS dysfunction, but that could be caused by a multitude of things um, in these settings. So confirming that CNS dysfunction with the high body temperature is number two. Number three is instituting um, the best possible cooling modality that you could use um, in the situation that you're in. And obviously we hope that you planned ahead for if it's in a controlled setting like a football practice. Or a lot of basic training situations in the military. Can you use cold water immersion? Is it there? If it is getting the person, the heat stroke victim in the cold water immersion as fast as possible, because um, that has the best cooling rate by far. Um, and um, if it's done really effectively with vigorously rotating the water, really cold water, most of the body in the water, you can get upwards of 0.35 degrees Celsius per minute cooling. And even if it's just done well, it can be 0.25 degrees Celsius per minute. Um, now, other re- remote settings or while you're bringing the person to definitive care in the military, like a taco burrito method, can work quite well. Um, but ultimately, if it's possible, you're trying to do that while you're bringing them to the cold water immersion um, so that you can still have the ultimate pinnacle in terms of cooling rates. And then the fourth concept is the concept of cool first, transport second. And this is really the, the huge paradigm shift for people because you're telling them, people that this medical emergency that they're better off to be treated on-site. And that's really different than a lot of other medical conditions. So that's the big shift for the EMS, EMT, um, emergency room physicians, getting people thinking that it is better to use the cold water immersion on-site, get their temp down, and then you send them to the hospital. Very proud that Connecticut became the first state last year to require EMS and EMTs to continue cold water immersion um, when they arrive, if an athletic trainer is delivering that care for a heat stroke um, of a high school athlete. Um, so that is just, that's a huge step forward for us, but obviously it's going to be, require some national effort. So those four steps just to quickly review is to quickly recognize it, um, get an accurate core body temperature, utilize the best cooling modality you can for the situation, preferably cold water immersion if you can plan ahead. And fourth is utilizing the concept of cool first, transport second.
0: Thanks, Doug. I would certainly just add that this is certainly a paradigm shift that the, the literature on this has been pretty clear for many years, but we still continue to have issues in regards to implementing the basic prehospital care of exertional heat stroke in certain EMS protocols. Do you or uh, Dr. O'Connor have any, any thoughts in regards to best ways to implement uh, this paradigm shift in regards to interacting with EMS and EMT, et cetera?
1: Interestingly, when we, we deal with EMS, EMT, ER docs, like locally at hospitals in certain towns and cities, we have a lot of success when we get people in the room together. But it, you could imagine the exhausting effort of like, you know, whatever there is, 21,000 high schools in America. You know, if you're trying to do it high school by high school, or you're trying to do it, you know, league by league, or, or whatever it is, or military base by military base, whoever, whatever it is, it's just a lot of effort. So when you can have a state like Connecticut mandate that, that cooling has to continue. That that now just eliminated the whole fight for Connecticut because now all the athletic trainers have this information and they don't have to argue anymore with EMS EMT people. Um, but when we do it on an individual basis, we we always have success because when you spend an hour or two explaining all the data, all the benefits, how it's implemented, other places who have used it successfully, um people ultimately, you know, come on board. But it's just we need to scale it much larger than this you know, kind of site-by-site method.
0: Yeah, I would certainly agree. We, we've had significant success at a local level and even a regional level uh, where we live here in Florida, but certainly getting it taken care of on a state or national level certainly requires significant policy changes that I think is something that uh, we as sports medicine providers need to continue to push for policy changes, which we'll discuss a bit more in a, in a few minutes. I'd like to mm-hmm. uh, transition a bit, but but really a vital component of the pre-hospital uh, care of exertional heat stroke uh, is an emergency action plan. So I know Dr. O'Connor has extensive experience uh, with his work in the military uh, creating and developing a, a, uh, an emergency action plan. So Dr. O'Connor, could you just take a few minutes and describe for us the importance of an emergency action plan and also how to, how to go about developing a strong emergency action plan for exertional heat illness?
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate the uh, the question, Seth. And I want to echo you know, everything Doug said up front, and, it, and it's really a privilege to be on the call with Doug Casa. Doug and I have been involved in a lot of civilian planning as well as a lot of military planning. I've, I've taken Doug to a number of military posts because wherever he goes, he makes a difference. You know, the military has worked for, my goodness, years and years and years at trying to leverage prevention for um, exertional heat stroke, exertional heat illness. Um, but despite that, Boy, just even just last year, we had almost 600 heat strokes in the United States military. So heat stroke, unfortunately, is still going to occur. But as Doug will tell you, and Doug has written about, it is 100% preventable that you would have a death. So certainly mortality should be something that uh, we don't read about, and uh, we want to do everything we can to limit uh, not only mortality but also morbidity. I think the other thing uh, I just want to reemphasize what Doug said was uh, the critical component when we put together the emergency action plan and try to limit the morbidity and mortality is this concept that you cool as quickly as possible. So that ultimately is going to be cooling on site. And I think in 2020, everybody knows you cool on site before you move or you're wrong. In terms of the concept of emergency action plan, yeah, I've had good fortune in in writing emergency action plans for... um, for the military at the high school level, at the collegiate level at the university I work at, and uh, with mass participation events. The key with these documents, of course, is they are written. It's written down, and uh, not only is it written down and explaining details with moving a patient from point of injury through the scenario you're going to run, uh, but it's practiced and it's rehearsed, and that practice or rehearsal is documented. Uh, that's going to be critical. And I know with most emergency action plans, in fact, Doug and the Corey Stringer Institute have uh, looked into this and published on it. Uh, Many of them just sit on a shelf, but they need to be rehearsed at least annually, at least, uh, with the team so that there's no surprises. Um, In our most recent uh, military doctrine that came out, we, we described the emergency action plan as a chain of survival. Very similar to what we all know with acute cardiac care with uh, basic life support, advanced life support, et cetera, as we move through the system from point of injury. Uh, And that goes right from the uh, stages of prevention to that first collapse. What is going to be the care on site from that immediate person on site to maybe local care on site that might involve advanced cooling with cooling uh, cold water immersion or something to have that effect? Uh, The chain of survival continues with EMS. Uh, What happens there? as they wait for the cooling on site, is there cooling in that vehicle? You know, perhaps with uh, chilled saline, et cetera, what happens in the emergency room? Which emergency room are you gonna be taking them to? Is it an emergency room that has uh, the capability for continued cold water immersion or advanced therapies like endovascular cooling? What is the capability of the hospital? You know, does the hospital, hospital have the capability again for targeted temperature control? again, maybe endovascular cooling or other therapies. And the chain of survival continues right through discharge and eventually what I know we're going to talk about, which is a return to play or return to duty. Uh, But with that being said, Seth, and uh, as Doug alluded to, there are a lot of people who are involved in this chain of survival, uh, whether it's the athletic trainer or the medic, the observing uh, first sergeant or coach, all the way through to uh, that first provider, the uh, EMS vehicle, and the emergency room. So I think the key to the emergency action plan is that uh, you've got everybody in the room, just like Doug said, and I know with the uh, with the Marine Corps Marathon algorithms that we've put together, and with emergency action plans for the military, uh, we get everybody in the room uh, who is who has a stake in the game, somewhere along the chain of survival. That's absolutely critical, so there's no surprises. And then when you do the rehearsal, it should also be a very carefully orchestrated rehearsal with all the people, again, who have a stake in the emergency action plan, we want to make sure the phones work, make sure that ambulance crew can actually get into the venue that you're going to be, that the emergency room is going to be available uh, on receipt and have, you know, the appropriate care. So I, I think the keys here with the emergency action plan are uh, first and foremost that it's written and everybody who has a stake in the game and the chain of survival is participating in the emergency action plan Uh, development as well as rehearsal. Doug, do you have any other thoughts on that with EAPs?
1: Oh, gosh, no, that's fantastic. I want to reiterate one point, just because I think a lot of doctors, team physicians don't completely understand during their training is not all cases of heat stroke are preventable, um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of things we can do to reduce the number of heat strokes. So heat acclimatization, body cooling strategies, hydration, proper rest, uh, proper phasing in of activity, um, a, a lot of other things, you know, work to rest ratios based on the environmental conditions with their proven strategies for reducing risk. But even if you do everything correctly, you're still going to have exertional heat strokes um, in, in basic training and officer training and athletics um, for laborers. And that is reason is because you have people start new medications. They might be coming, um, have a viral illness at that point. They might have a fever. They might be coming back from an illness. They might be coming back from an injury, whatever it is, people, are going to suffer exertion heat strokes. And that's why what Fran had said, we can't prevent all the cases of heat stroke, but we can prevent within controlled settings. We can prevent all the deaths, um, any deaths um, happening from heat stroke. And that's why it's so critical that we have this plan in place, you know, and have the emergency action plan and you're rehearsing it. And, you know, I, I know in athletics, you know, whether it be an athletic trainer for a particular sport or in the military at certain bases, there's a lot of turnover, you know, sometimes in positions. And it's why it's so important that we have this EAP documented and people are regularly rehearsing it so that information is making it down through all the layers of the system um, so that that stuff is carrying forward even if the people are changing positions.
2: Hey, Doug, I would just add one thing, you know, and, I, and like I echoed there with almost 600 heat strokes in the military, not completely preventable. But I guess I would argue, Doug, that, you know, for the healthcare provider, for the team physician, it is predictable. Many times,
1: yeah. Uh, oh, you know, by question. identifying
2: yeah. certain conditions you've published on this, we've published on this, uh, very predictable, and it's a great opportunity for a physician working with his or her ATC to uh, intervene.
1: Oh, no question. That's a great point, because you and I have a lot of experience actually, you know, preventing it, treating it, but also serving ex- expert witness on cases when, obviously, um, you know, sometimes things didn't turn out well. Um, you know, there's there's those X factors that are just seem to be ever present, and it's it's almost always the first few days of of the athletic activity or the training. It's people coming back from an illness. Um, it's it's people um, who are not as well conditioned. It's people like coaches who are, um, are you know are not following accepted protocol, um, you know, or um, things like that 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 seem to permeate time and time again.
0: Well, Fran, thank you so much for reviewing an emergency action plan. The one thing I'll just echo that both of you said is is not only creating it but truly rehearsing, and it's amazing the number of things that you can see that you didn't think about. And I've heard Fran present on an emergency action plan numerous times and how detailed um, his presentation is on the things that you really don't think about initially, but until you rehearse these emergency action plans and realize uh, the steps and the components that, uh, that, that go into creating an emergency action plan and how important those are, um, I'm going to close and give you kind of both the same question, but a, a different uh, take on it. Uh, and, Doug, I'm going to start with you. Um, certainly in the civilian world, I feel like you and the, and the folks at KSI are really on the forefront of changes that are occurring on this topic. What exciting uh, components on this topic do you foresee in regards in the near future to improving the care of our athletes, our patients, our laborers, our warfighters with exertional heat illness or exertional heat stroke?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, but what I mentioned earlier with the team up for sports safety, we're making such massive strides with policy changes. That'd be one. But I think on the technology front, you know, we're, I don't think we're too many years away from, um, you know, having even better ways. Like once we, we can get like wearable technologies that either could do hydration status and body temperature assessment um, where an athletic trainer might have an iPad and, and know the hydration status or the body temperature of the people while they're out there participating, I know that seems some people like that sci-fi, but um, trust me, because we're doing a ton of wearable technology research right now in our labs. Um, you know that maybe three or five years from now, we might have a better capacity to have real-time data that's accurate um, that we can, you know, one prevent things from happening, you know, do a, a lot more to prevent them from happening in the first place. Um, so I, I see a lot of excitement. I tell my PhD students all the time that I wish I was getting into the profession now. Um, because I think that the lease that we're going to make from a technology standpoint in the next like 10 years is going to be equal to what we've done in the last 50 years.
0: That's great, and certainly seeing some of the technology that you guys have been researching and dealing with, it, it, I agree, is is very exciting. Fran, in regards to the military, I feel like the you know the use of WBGT for work to rest ratios and heat acclimatization protocols. I feel like the military is typically years ahead of the civilian world in regards to heat safety recommendations. And I'm going to give you kind of the same questions. You get the privilege of kind of having a sneak peek at, at what the military is doing. Is there anything you can describe or, or discuss with us of some of the steps that the military has taken to improving the care of uh, warfighters and laborers and athletes uh, with exertional heat stroke?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. You know, one of the things that uh, the military research community is doing is more and more modeling trying to do a better job of prediction so that they can make appropriate activity modification. You know, the military has very structured uh, flag system based on WGBT and then a prescribed workload and a hydration cycle. So there's more advanced modeling going on uh, right now and and being tested to get better prediction so that we can do a better job of prevention. But uh, I would like to share that, you know, one of the things we're working on you know, in our lab at CHAMP is, again, continuing to focus on on this return to duty, return to play scenario. And I'm I'm just a knucklehead primary care physician, you know, again, trying to struggle with identifying who's high risk, who's low risk, who's the kid that I need to worry about, who can I clear, who do I need to really worry about. So we're working on uh, developing a scoring system uh, right now by following a number of heat strokes and what we're doing with our workups uh, so that we'll have a scoring system on the future, in the future that sports medicine physician could look, could look at the scoring system, almost like a well score for a PE, and figure out, okay, this kid is high risk. This one I'm going to consider uh, maybe, you know, getting a, a heat tolerance test at the Corey Stringer Institute or calling Corey Stringer. Uh, this kid I, I have no issue with. This kid I'm going to need a more prolonged recovery. We're looking at uh, a lot of genomics at this point. The day may come, you know, that, that there's some serum test. Uh, that would be able to classify you as heat tolerant either before an activity or after so that you could be assured uh, when someone goes out to uh, re-engage in an exercise. And we're actually exploring right now uh, in, a, in a project we, we're engaged in is exhaled gases. So with exhaled gases, you do have the ability to do some proteomics that you can might actually be able to assess, uh, again, some kind of status of heat tolerance. So I think there are going to be more and more tools to help providers uh, with this return to duty, return to play question, other than just uh, flipping a coin and say, "Yeah, I think you can go back now." Uh, so that's where I see it going.
0: Perfect. I, I think the return to duty, return to play is s- significant. Literature on that topic is is definitely needed for for returning returning people to to duty and to activity safely. I, I think that's it from my end. Is there anything else either of you would like to add before we close tonight? I certainly thank both of you for your time. No, I'm good. I Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: No, uh, same thing, Seth, and uh, I, I think the single most important thing that I have found over the last, uh, boy, probably 15, 20 years is collaboration, and it's uh, it's a team approach, and I, I've certainly learned uh, a tremendous amount uh, from Doug Cassa and the ATCs because it's the team that's going to make a difference.
0: I totally agree. I've learned so much from each of you, and I've learned a ton from our ATs and and just collaborating and working together. It's amazing how much you can accomplish uh, as a team as opposed to a single person. So I certainly look forward to seeing each of you in person soon whenever we see what the world looks like on the other side of this. So this concludes our uh, AMSSM sportscast for tonight. I'd like to thank both uh, Dr. Casa and Dr. O'Connor for taking time out of their busy schedules to discuss uh, the topic of exertional heat illness, particularly exertional heat stroke. And I'd like to encourage everyone to please join us for the next uh, AMSSM Sportscast. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like more detail on return-to-play decisions, feel free to check out the longer version of the AMSSM Sports Medcast posted on the AMSSM platform, which can be found by searching for AMSSM wherever you get your podcast. You can even fast-forward to the 17-minute mark if you want to hear the rest of the conversation. Thank you.